You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madam Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The Malagasy people put a lot of stock into their alliance with the pirates. It reminds me of the alliances between the pirates and the Mosquito people, or the Guna, back in the West Indies. They lived in a world with heavily armed Europeans scouring the globe for people to enslave and lands to seize. They didn't have access to foundries or gunpowder, and the pirates could provide them with the guns and the steel that they needed. And, to be clear, not all the Malagasy were allied with the pirates, only certain peoples among the Malagasy. And it worked out well for them. Some of those kingdoms that were allied to the pirates will become large empires on Madagascar. Because they had guns and had established the contacts to trade for more guns. It's really about as simple as that. There also, though, seems to have been a strong desire to have children with the pirates. I'm not prepared to speculate on why that might be the case, but they always took pride in their pirate heritage. Even today, the descendants of the pirates are something of a little subculture among the Malagasy. Remember the relationship between Queen Antavaratra Rahina and one of the pirates who sailed with Thomas II? A pirate who was also named Thomas, but probably wasn't actually to himself. Well, she had that son named Ratsimihalo. He was only four years old here in 1699, but they made a big deal about his heritage. In their culture, that was important to them. There's a... Another man 
on Madagascar, who will go on to be Ratsimi Hollow's chief rival for power, who had, reportedly, a very similar background. That's Abraham Samuel. You remember Abraham Samuel. He was that man that escaped enslavement on Martinique, only to sail with John Hoare on the John and Rebecca. Eventually, he would be elected quartermaster. When the Malagasy people at Adam Baldridge's trading post on St. Mary's rose up and killed most of the pirates there, Abraham Samuel escaped, with many of the other pirates of color in the crew with him. That uprising took place when it did because there was a terrible storm, and that storm wrecked Abraham Samuel and his men down the coast of Madagascar. They washed up near a place that the English call Port Dolphin. Properly, in the original French, it's Fort Dauphin. The Queen Mother of the local Malagasy kingdom came down to the shore to have a look at these half-drowned pirates, and she recognized a birthmark on Abraham Samuel. A birthmark that she remembered from her long-lost son a son that she had had with a French-speaking pirate some years earlier, who then took the young boy with him. And now, more than twenty years later, her son had returned. And that's quite a tale. And it's not impossible. History is filled with amazing and miraculous coincidences, but I suspect this might not be one of them. I think it more likely that the Queen Mother here met with this pirate, who was black, and who had a crew of men that followed him and hatched a plan. The two made a deal. If Abraham Samuel agreed to be her son, which would validate him in the eyes of the people, which was important to the Malagasy, she would give him a crown and a fortress. From that fortress, he could arm and train her soldiers, and they could defend their lands from European encroachment. That's also a pretty amazing story, if you ask me. Abraham Samuel, King Samuel, was given command of Fort Dauphin. And then, the notorious pirate ship Segway arrived bearing a uh, dramatic line that would lead into the title. This is episode 287, Royal Mercy. Yeah, I wanted to begin today talking about Abraham Samuel and introducing a couple of those ideas, which will become relevant, but that's not what today's show is about. We're going to return to Captain Robert Culliford in 1699 on St. Mary's Island. He's down in Captain Warren's cabin, aboard a small pink called the Vine. Warren had just handed Robert Culliford a pardon. He wrote a note on the back that read, quote, By virtue of orders to me given by Majesty's commissioners, I hand delivered to Robert Culliford this proclamation containing Majesty's royal mercy he being willing and desirous to accept of the same by me, Thomas Warren. Now, I should be clear here. That was an important note because Captain Thomas Warren 
Thomas Warren the Younger, remember, did not legally have the authority to grant a pardon from the king. Only his uncle, Commodore Thomas Warren, had that authority. He was giving this pardon to him, but it would not become legally binding until it was signed by Commodore Warren. So that note was there to show that this transaction had taken place and should be respected, even if it didn't really count yet. Captain Warren would go on to describe Robert Culliford as excited, elated, jubilant. He was very happy to have this opportunity, and you can understand why. So Robert Culliford asked Captain Warren to be prepared to sail as soon as possible. They were going to leave soon, and they might have to leave in a hurry. I don't have any details about what happened on shore. I wonder if he, you know, announced it. Hey guys, I've got pardons available, because there were only 20 pardons available. Or did he handpick a number of men that would return to the civilized world with him? The other pirates at St. Mary's later on appear to know what happened to him, so I think he knew some men that wanted to go. So I suspect that most of the pirates didn't want to go but Culliford knew of at least 16 others who did, including his companion, John Swan. That leaves three pardons on the table. We'll get to those later. For now, they had to prepare to leave. They were going to be leaving quite a bit behind at St. Mary's. You know, I think each of them only loaded up their sea chest with all of their plunder and any sentimental knickknacks they had. Of course, they had some clothes, their sea kit, a pistol, a cutlass, but not much beyond that. The perhaps most important thing they were leaving behind was their family. They had wives, and now they had children, a few little babies running around. But I don't think we should look at this as the pirates abandoning their families. I think this was kind of expected. This was the deal. The Malagasy on St. Mary's did recognize marriage. They had their own ceremony. But I don't think we should look at those marriages through a Western lens. They didn't have vows about till death do us part. It was less Mr. Right and more Mr. Right now. It was usually about choosing someone with whom you would have children to make sure that there wasn't some sort of horrific genetic inbreeding going on. So when these men prepared to depart, these women were happy to see their husbands off. It's worth noting here that many of these children, children of the pirates, were going to go on to follow King Ratsimi Hollow in battle against Abraham Samuel in about 15 years. The following morning, before dawn, Culliford, Swan, and 15 others climbed aboard the Vine. They were in something of a rush, they insisted that Captain Warren be woken up and that they depart as soon as possible, immediately, you know. They were in such a rush that it makes me wonder if maybe they'd taken a little bit more than their fair share with them. Either way, soon enough they were underway, and their first stop was to be at Fort Dauphin, just down the coast. The plan was to meet Commodore Thomas Warren at Fort Dauphin, where the pirates would transfer to his flagship, I'm sorry, former pirates would transfer to his flagship. But it gets weirder. They weren't going to head straight for London. Commodore Warren was carrying a very important passenger, a supercargo. That was the new governor 
for the East India Company. He was going to drop the new governor off in Bombay, and then he was to negotiate a new treaty with the Grand Mughal Aurangzeb. Both the new governor and the new treaty were responses to Captain Kidd and his capture of the Quita merchant. But several of the pirates who had accepted that pardon were former associates, crewmen of Captain Kidd's. They'd taken part in that raid, and now they had that pardon from the king. It was ridiculous and cynical. But Commodore Warren was as yet nowhere to be seen. Not to worry, though. Robert Culliford was on good terms with Abraham Samuel. They went way back, so they were welcome to wait there at Fort Dauphin. While they waited, though, they met a man who had been stranded there for some time. His name was John Kruger. John Kruger was German, so probably more properly Jan Kruger. He was only 18 years old at this point, but he had a long career ahead of him. In a couple of decades, he was going to be the mayor of New York City. And actually, his son would go on to be the speaker of the New York Assembly when the revolution broke out. He was suspected of having loyalist sympathies and even collaborating with the British when they occupied New York. For now, though, Jan Kruger was just a young man with a big problem. A couple of months back, he'd arrived at Fort Dauphin, hoping to trade in human beings. Fort Dauphin had been a regular stopover for English slavers looking to circumvent the Royal Africa Company. But the new king, Abraham Samuel, had himself been enslaved for some years. He wasn't going to play that game. As was the usual custom, John Kruger went before King Samuel. He offered him gifts and asked permission to do business. King Samuel was all smiles. He welcomed John Kruger in and said that a ship full of strong men and pretty young girls was on its way as we speak, and he wasn't lying about that. But the implication that they would be for sale, well, that was a lie. A few days later, that ship did indeed arrive at Fort Dauphin, and Samuel invited both John Kruger and this new crew to meet up at the fort. They all introduced themselves and shook hands and agreed to do business on the morrow. Tonight, though, it was time to toast to their new business arrangement. King Samuel hosted quite a party, and, you know, pirates know how to throw a bash. They bought in the hog and the zebu freshly roasted. The rum flowed like wine and the wine flowed like water, and then there were the girls. A couple of dozen very young, very beautiful Malagasy girls arrived, wearing next to nothing. All of them naturally available for purchase. But that's for tomorrow. Tonight, let them be my gift to you. These girls poured drinks down the slave traders' throats. They lit pipes that emanated intoxicating smoke. They caressed the men and kissed them and made love to them. By the wee hours of the morning, the party had wound down and everyone had passed out. Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. 
We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary, from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. If you want nightmares, you are in the right place. I couldn't sleep last night after listening. This podcast is genuinely scary. That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history, Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects, and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind, to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there in the dark. While the men were sleeping it off, a longboat departed Fort Dauphin and headed for Kruger's ship. They were Abraham Samuel's men, and they boarded the ship, the Prophet Daniel. They killed the few crew that were left on board, and they took the ship over. In the morning, the deception was made clear. The slavers awoke to find that all of the cargo and all of their weapons had been confiscated. Instead of waking up next to beautiful girls, they were awoken by angry men holding swords. King Samuel informed him that all his property, including the ship, now belonged to the king of Fort Dauphin. In time, Samuel would sell the prophet Daniel to a pirate crew out of St. Mary's for a pretty tidy profit. The crew, the former crew of the prophet Daniel, though, they weren't killed. They weren't even exactly imprisoned. But if they wanted to eat, they had to work. Their days were filled with hard manual labor fixing up Fort Dauphin. And that was the state in which Captain Warren and Robert Culliford found them. Now, King Samuel wasn't trying to hide any of this, which was lucky for Captain Warren. He'd been planning on doing a bit of business himself, but now... No, nothing like that. I'm just a friendly guy who hates slavery, here to hand out some pardons to your good friend, Robert Culliford. I've got a couple extra if you want one. No? Well, here's a jug of wine for all your trouble. Abraham Samuel, who really didn't want to keep these slavers around, was happy to let them get on board the pink with Captain Warren. By this point, though, Culliford and his companions were getting a bit nervous. Commodore Warren had still not appeared. And remember, without his signature, their pardons were invalid. Do you remember, way back when we introduced Commodore Warren, we discussed his conduct at the Battle of Beachy Head? That's the battle early in the Nine Years' War that was such a terrible defeat for England. It was the battle that convinced Henry Every to leave the Navy. It was a battle that convinced Queen Mary to start a hospital for injured sailors. Thomas Warren the Elder got lost during that battle. He left the line. That 
opened up a weakness in the English line that the French exploited and led to a number of men losing their lives. Thanks to this embarrassing move, Thomas Warren was nicknamed Wrong Way Warren, and naturally he failed upward and was made a Commodore. Well, here in 1699, Wrong Way Warren had gone the wrong way. Instead of heading around the southern end of Madagascar to reach Fort Dauphin and meet up with his nephew, he just sailed right up the west coast, looking for a fort that was nowhere to be seen. When he rounded the northern edge of Madagascar, he caught the wind and just headed on out to India. It, you know, makes sense, I guess. He had pretty pressing business in India, but come on, what are you doing? Not to worry, though. Upon reaching India, he would fail to secure a new treaty, and shortly thereafter, he would die. They say not to speak ill of the dead, so all I can say about this man who had done so poorly all throughout his naval career and harassed pirates and non-pirates for years, all I can say about him is... Anyway, Cutlass Culliford and his men were freaking out by this point. Without Commodore Warren, they were exposed. If some other Royal Navy ship, or if, God forbid, an East India Company ship were to happen upon them, they might just be arrested and hanged. They wrote a letter that I was going to read, but it's really not important. The gist of the letter is that they had been granted pardons by Captain Warren here. They were all very happy to have them and thankful to the king, who they loved... So, you know, please don't arrest us and hang us if you happen to capture this ship. It was a flimsy shield, but better than nothing. After a few weeks of waiting for the Commodore, though, Captain Thomas Warren decided to depart. If his uncle wasn't going to show up, he thought he might as well finish the mission himself, and who knows, he might even get a promotion. While they had been waiting at Fort Dauphin, some... Pretty momentous, consequential events had transpired. Shortly after the Vine departed St. Mary's Island, Samuel Burgess had arrived at the island. Everyone was, as usual, happy to see Burgess in his ship the Margaret, but Burgess was surprised that Captain Culliford, along with John Swan and fifteen others, had left the island behind. Perhaps... The most surprised was Dirk Chivers. At this point, Chivers had left piracy behind to sail with Samuel Burgess. But the other pirates, those who stayed at St. Mary's Island, well, they told him all about this official-looking Englishman and the pardons. And then they remembered, oh yeah, there's a couple of those left somewhere around here, over on that table maybe. You can have them if you want. Samuel Burgess and Dirk Chivers very much wanted those pardons. So they snapped them up and they left. Usually they'd spend a couple of weeks trading with Edward Quelch and the pirates, but now they wanted to get to Commodore Warren before he departed the region. Their best chance of finding Commodore Warren was to sail for Cape Town. Anyone who was going to return to anywhere in the Atlantic world would have to pass by Cape Town, and they would stop there. They were welcomed in by the Dutch authorities, and they asked around, you know, had Commodore Warren been here, or anyone else you might notice? And no, Commodore Warren or his nephew, no one had been there yet. 
They'd arrived in time, and they could wait. Then, an East India Company ship arrived in the harbor. When she sailed into port, Samuel Burgess failed to fire off a salute. The captain of this East India Company ship, the loyal merchant, was a man named Matthew Loth. And Matthew Loth reminds me of the kind of guy who drives a really, really big truck into his job at his daddy's company. The kind of guy who demands, although does not command, respect. When Burgess failed to salute, Captain Loth demanded that the captain come over to his ship for a quick chat. Captain Loth, as it turned out, was an employee of the East India Company hired to hunt pirates. Now, Samuel Burgess admitted freely that he was trading in human lives, which was technically illegal, but not of interest to the East India Company. Captain Loth pressed him, though, about piracy. Know any pirates, Captain Burgess? Obviously, Samuel Burgess denied ever meeting with such vile men, but at just that moment, one of Loth's agents burst into the meeting. Captain Loth had sent some men over to inspect the Margaret, and when they did so, there were about half a dozen men wearing silk. How exactly does a sailor on board a small-time slaver of dubious legality afford flowing, colorful, wildly expensive Mughal silk robes? It was inexplicable. So Captain Loth moved the loyal merchant into a position to fire upon the Margaret. Then he hailed the men on board and ordered them to surrender. Dirk Chivers, who was standing on board and indeed was wearing flowing colorful silk robes, said that they had no business with the East India Company. But Captain Loth had business with him. So a boat rolled over to the Margaret, and a party of heavily armed men climbed on board. There were, indeed, several men wearing those flowing silk robes, although fewer than they anticipated. A couple of the pirates had gotten away. Dirk Chivers, though, with his pardon in hand, planned to fight this legally. When he rode over to the loyal merchant, he produced the document, which was inspected by Captain Loth. It was unsigned. It was out of date, and Mr. Chivers' name wasn't even on it. Every crewman from the Margaret was arrested. Captain Loth went ashore to inform the Dutch authorities of what had just transpired, and when he told them, they were furious. This was not an English port. I mean, sure, they were allies, but according to a host of international laws, a foreign captain had no jurisdiction in their port. He couldn't arrest crews that had been accepted by their portmasters. The Dutch demanded that Captain Burgess and all of the rest be released immediately. But Captain Matthew Loth just told them to take it up with the king. You know, King William Hendrick. The Prince of Orange Nassau, the stodholder of Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, and Gelders? Why don't you fine Dutch officers complain about the orders that that guy gave me? The very next day, the Vine arrived at Cape Town. 
Robert Culliford and all of the other former pirates were excited to see the Margaret in port. They knew that ship and Samuel Burgess well. But when they hailed her, the Margaret sat quiet. After they put in at the docks, the vine was hailed by the loyal merchant. Captain Loth demanded to meet with the captain of the vine. Later on, Captain Loth would record in the ship's log, quote, I sent for ye master, whose name was Thomas Warren. Ye vine pink came from St. Mary's and has aboard fourteen pirates, or as he calls them, passengers, whereof Captain Culliford, that was commander of ye mocha, was one. I asked Captain Warren some questions about ye pirates, what he knew and likewise his own circumstances. He threw down one of His Majesty's proclamations. I told him they were not made for honest men but for pirates, and if he had any, I would examine them, showing him my commission. End quote. Now, Captain Warren did not know Samuel Burgess, but he learned in the past few minutes that his passengers did. And when he learned that Samuel Burgess and Dirk Chivers and a host of other men were in the belly of this ship, he blew his stack. Those men carried his pardons. He was responsible for them. So Captain Warren demanded that Loth release the prisoners immediately. When Captain Loth refused, Warren said he was going to file a complaint with the Dutch authorities, at which point Matthew Loth exploded. He and his armed men wrestled Warren to the ground and arrested him right there, tossing him in the brig. The following morning, Captain Loth boarded a longboat with forty heavily armed men and took it over to the vine. They called out for Robert Culliford and all of his pirate accomplices to surrender immediately. Cutlass Culliford, decked out in fine flowing silk robes and carrying a pistol and a cutlass, approached the rail. His lips cracked into a wide grin, and he beamed down at Captain Loth. He was disinclined to acquiesce to the request. Captain Loth ordered his men to storm the pink, but then, as they were preparing to do so, one hundred heavily armed Dutch sailors appeared behind Captain Culliford. The Dutch there at Cape Town were already angry with Captain Loth, and it appears that Culliford had gotten word to them that they might be arrested in the near future. Loth stammered, he made demands, he stamped his feet, he made threats, but everyone knew he wasn't going to fire on this ship. He would be crazy to do so. Firing on these Dutchmen would create a pretty severe international incident, and if he did, all of the shore batteries would blow his ship to smithereens. So Captain Loth went back to his own ship. He dragged Captain Warren out of the hold for further interrogation. Now, he'd never really given Captain Warren a chance to say his piece. And now that they were sitting down, having a discussion, Captain Loth learned that young Captain Thomas Warren was on a mission from his uncle, Commodore, Thomas Warren. They had instructions from the king, but Commodore Thomas Warren wasn't here right now because he was busy carrying a new governor of the East India Company, your boss, to Bombay. 
a governor with orders to do exactly what Captain Warren was doing right now. It was at this point that Captain Loth realized he had made a huge mistake. Suddenly, he was all smiles. Have a glass of wine. My apologies, just doing my job. He released Captain Warren back to the vine. But he did not release Dirk Chivers or Samuel Burgess. The following morning, Captain Warren and Robert Culliford decided it would be best not to waste any time. They didn't want to tempt fate, so they departed Cape Town immediately. As they left the harbor, Captain Matthew Loth fired his guns in salute. Warren graciously returned the gesture. Next time, things go bad for Cutlass Culliford. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight